Hi, welcome to the PIP podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with Cheryl Davison. She's a proud Wabunga and Narago woman, and she's an artist who expresses her creativity and connection to country in many forms. Best known for her prints and paintings, she's also the Aboriginal Creative Director with Four Winds Festival, and she has created and sings with the Jinama Yilaga Choir. Her artwork features on the cover of issue 23 of Pit Magazine. This episode was recorded on Ewan Country on the banks of the Pambula River. And later in the episode, Cheryl sings for us and we have Miradar the Sea Eagle flying above us. So Cheryl, could you share with us where it all began for you and when you first started sharing your art with others? I was actually a 16-year-old girl and I had enough of my brothers at home and uh, mum and dad packed me up and dad got me a job in, in Sydney. Yeah. And so I lived with my brother and his girlfriend in Hillsdale. I was um, fresh out of school, 16 years old and... Um, went to Sydney to work at, uh, at um, Chippendale, Chippendale Neighbourhood Centre. Mm. And it was, um, it was a little, um, we did the afternoon program for all the little kids around, um, you know, Redfern and Chippendale, the block pretty much, you know. Yeah. All the kids from the block. And what were you around. doing? So I was trainee community artist. Okay. And I wasn't even old enough really to do any, you know, like live, have get a flat or anything like that. Yeah. Although I did because my, you know, I'd lived with my brother and his girlfriend for a little while and that kind of wasn't working out. Yeah. And then so Mark, who was training me, uh, became my, you know, my really good friend because we're still friends today but. He um, ended up um, getting me into uh, the, he found out that there was a women's hostel in North Sydney at uh, Neutral Bay, Aboriginal Women's Hostel. Oh, yeah. So he moved me over there. And from there, oh, I really loved it there at Neutral Bay because, you know, just uh, I'd have to walk right down this big steep hill to get to the jetties and catch the ferry across to... Circular Quay and then mm. catch the train to Redfern. Mm. And so it was all really adventurous. And, yeah. Yeah, and I loved it. And I really just started really then to find myself, you know, like, because I went up to Sydney without a clue, really. Mm. I'd never had any money to myself or earned any money. Yeah. <laughs> I just went there so young and fresh and clueless. Yeah. And um, didn't know how to dress or anything. And um, I started, when I first started getting my paycheck, first thing I was like, week after week, I was just buying clothes. Yeah. So I ended up with all these beautiful clothes, you know. <laughs> and mum would come up to Sydney and she'd look at me and she'd go, you've got more clothes than sense, Cheryl. <laughs> 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 but I just loved it because, you know, first time in my life. Yeah, yeah. I've ever had that freedom and just to be able to buy my own clothes mm. and be independent and um and also just move into the big city and, yeah yeah and you know it wasn't all good but um I was still pretty lonely for home and that yeah but did you make lots of friends and close connections no I was a bit awkward teenager yeah I had my cousins out at La Rue, so I'd cruise out there on the weekends and yeah. hook up with them but um, I was actually really shy around other people. Mm. Um, so, you know, being in the art world, Mark would take me to places where they were filming something and, you know, art joints and I was just so um, shy. Like, mm. I could hardly talk. Like, I was just so shy and frightened and it's like, yeah. I don't know what to say. And he'd say, you want to come in? They're going to watch this film and blah, blah, blah. And I go... Oh, no, I think I'll just go back to work. 
Yeah. <laughs> or I can just sit in the in the um, Chippendale Neighbourhood Centre and wait for the kids to get out of school. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my job was to actually do activities with the kids, so mm, create right. paint activities or art activities, which mm. I did pretty easily. So when did you first get into painting and art? Well, since I was, a, I was like, well, I've, I just, to be honest, I actually started loving art when I was only in preschool at Bolliger Lake that Annie and Thomas used to run. Yeah. And Maria and Michelle were a year older than me. And they used to wag school. <laughs> in preschool? In, in a kindy. <laughs> and so they'd come into the preschool trying to um, um, play with my finger paints and stuff. Yeah. Only Anne would stoop, stoop. Go on, get home, you girls. You're meant to be at school. <laughs> well, that was where my love actually first started. Yeah. And I remember that, you know, and I've actually mm. always acknowledged Anne Anne in that stuff. And then, you know, I was always, always been And then artistic. at school were you kind of encouraged or did you sort of have mentors yeah, or people that were helping you? I was a bit of a rebel at school. But if I go back to my early childhood, I actually got severely burnt oh. at Wally Glake. Did you? And... Um, my back was severely burned, like third-degree burns on 70% of my body. Mm. So all of my back and down. And I ended up in hospital for 12 months. Mm. That's in How old were you then? I was just turned five. Because um, in the old days, the old mission houses, they had big open fires, mm. wood fires, and they had a long nighty on them. Caught, caught a light in the fire and mum was out the back, you know, hanging out the clothes and she was pregnant with my younger sister. She couldn't catch me and kept running and, mm. and the fire flames kept getting higher and higher and she couldn't mm. catch me. But my uncle Terry Wilco, he worked out how he was going to catch me because in the house there used to be like a two back doors and the kitchen and dining room in the middle. So I was running out one door and running in the other, looking for mum, and and I kept running. She couldn't catch me. Uncle Terry Wilco stood at one end, one door with the blanket, ready to just. Mm. It's awful. Yeah. So. So I spent all that time in hospital. Spent nine months in Canberra and three months in Maria. And it was that time that actually mum and dad started to send um, by stuff for me to do, like cancel and text. Yeah, while you're in hospital. While well, I was in hospital. Yeah. And uh, that really started. And it never finished because after that, when I come out of hospital, they realised, oh, she can't really give up. Yeah. <laughs> she loves art. So. They continued every Christmas, birthday, whatever. It was always art material. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Every time. Every Christmas party. And my dad was worked for the council, so they used to have council picnic parties with council Santa. Yeah. Some old drunken dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Stumbling Giving around. out the presents. <laughs> And every year he'd give me pencils and texts and, and scrapbooks and stuff. And for three years in a row, I, all I wanted was a camera because Michelle, Dennis was my brother, two years older. He got a camera. The next year Michelle got a camera. And then the next year was my turn. Yeah. Yes, it's my turn to get a camera. And I never got a camera. Oh. They bought something else and I was oh, no. devastated. But um, I'm not a bad I'm not a, you know, I've got a good eye for for that. Yeah. For photography. So I ended up being um, 
yeah, that's where it all started. But then through school, because I was a bit of a rebel when I got to high school, uh, the teachers knew that that's what I liked. So I feel like they kind of pushed me in that way. And then yeah. when they see me do something really good, they really encouraged me because I was quite naughty. Yeah, yeah. And I was really disruptive because I had a gay friend and he and I were terrible together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> always laughing and joking around. So anyways, well, often when they see... Yeah, then you, they find something that you're actually into... It's worth encouraging because you'll yeah. focus on that rather than mucking Well, around. they even went as far as the Bombardier High teachers went as far as sending me up to the art classroom to show the teacher up there what I'd done and they loved it so much they made me stand in front of the class and tell the whole class and then they put it on a board for a week. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, some of those teachers actually come to one of my exhibitions I had in Nara. Oh, yeah. Which is really lovely. Yeah. So, anyways, that was kind of, it was always that kind of push, go that way, you know. Yeah. Um, and did your family, was there artistic people? I think my nan your family? was, uh, well, my nan used to do these beautiful, what we call bark paintings, but they're actually um, paper bark, you know, um, paper bark stuck to uh, watercolours. So they look like landscapes. Oh, okay. and they were really well done. Yeah, so right. Nan used to get them and go to the airport and down in, you know, downtown Sydney and um, sell them because Nan was La Perouse lady. Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, that that talent could come partly from her because my dad was a good drawer but he never ever thinged himself as an artist. Mm. Never, you know, he did, never recognised himself as an artist and it was a shame because he was actually quite a good drawer. Mm. Like in some of his quick drawings I see, he was like, like you know, just yeah. he's got the essence, really yeah. good. Draw a dog sitting down, it was like one go and it was like, yeah, that's so good. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, yeah, and it wasn't muck around, like it wasn't childish or naive, it was quite a good drawing, mm. you know. So yeah. uh, Dad had that hidden talent but he never ever kind of, yeah, Never done that. But um, my brother was a bit of an artist. And then my grandfather, Reggie, he was an artist too, I believe. Yeah. So he was on my mum's side, a master of, what is it? Jack of all trade, master of none. Yeah. So he was artistic as well. But he told stories. Okay. Grandfather Reggie told stories. And so he would spend all you know, time with us telling stories and yarns. Yeah. Not just dreamtime stories but ghost stories and yeah. things about his life growing up, you know. And then mum kind of inherited that as well. Mm. So mum would tell a good yarn. Yeah, yeah. And But it was really hard for her to tell a good yarn, you know, sit her down to get her to tell a yarn. Yeah, oh, no, I don't feel like it, you know. But when yeah. she started... yeah. She would really just tell so stories that would just make you giggle and <laughs> laugh so much and really beautiful stories, you know, mm. about um, Uncle Alec and her, their relationship, you know, growing up mm. and the life that they had, which wasn't an easy life, but, you know, they, mm. the stories are really lovely. And she got, she was, she was... She was in a job at, she got, um, Grandfather sent her down to Sydney somewhere where she worked in some boarding house when she was only young. And one day Uncle Alec Maria's dad turned up and his friend just mm. got, went there to visit her, just rocked up. And the old matron, whoever it was, said, go on, go and spend some time with your brother. You know, it's all right. So she went and spent an hour with him. And then when Uncle Alec, was going, she burst out crying. She said, I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, no, don't start this, daughter. You can't come. You've got to stay here. Because her nickname was Daughter. Okay. He nicknamed her Daughter. Anyways, um, you don't start this, daughter. You've got to stay. And she went in and she was sobbing away to the old matron. And the old matron said, back to and go with your brother. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so she did. 
Yeah, but, um, you know, these little gems you should just tell, you know, it's yeah. out of the blue. And go, oh, that's so cute. You know, like, yeah. It just really tells us how much love she had, you know, for, yeah. her, for her brother and her yeah. family just by telling these stories. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's, uh, I think that really, that storytelling comes from Grandpa. And, yeah. And mum. And then they. And is that. Do you feel like that's you're telling stories through your artwork? Is that and that's exactly yeah. So yeah. I can actually you know think about those times when grandfather, oh you know any of the stories that he told it was quite a lot, and he would put us in you know put you in places like um, his experiences like um, mm. even on hilltop for instance and working for the Bates family, you know then I actually feel like that's. That's my. That's a connection for me, mm. and so I did actually. You know, I could do a series of that old, that old, mm. old time that they lived there, um, and even though I don't know much about that story, I know that that's where my family lived, mm. and they worked. Um, they worked for that fa- the Bates family, and yeah, they run that farm. So they must have been really good at what they did, you know, or mm. um, I don't know, you know, where they got the experience to actually. There's parts of the story I don't know about, mm. but at least if I can put them in that place and start to imagine some of the things that they did, that's my story, that's my artwork. Mm. You know? Yeah. And just um, sometimes it might be just that I know, I remember people telling me, the story of Kuliga. And my grandfather did tell me that story, but then mum remembered the story as well, so she told me some of it. And then uh, I heard other parts of the story um, about her cloak um, Mm. coming from other people. And then, you know... Can you tell us some some of that story? Yeah, or about the story of Kuliga and how you've kind of portrayed that in that, in your artwork. Well, Kulika is the mother and um, so she's laying down looking out at her two sons. And this is Gulaga Mountain for Gulliga people Mountain. who don't know. Yeah. Um, Kulika has two sons, Najinuga and Barangooba. And the, the story is, the first story I, I used to tell was about him being stuck out at sea. Mm. And then... It's kind of changed a bit um, just in hearing different people talking about, you know, the reasons why he was out there, mm. that he moved away from camp, um, that he drowned and that. So these are just things that I've heard from other people. So I was kind of repeating parts of that story. Mm. But um, Najinogu is the baby son. And that um, he sits there at the foot. She placed him there near her, close to her in arms reach because the oldest son moved out at camp and he's stuck out there now. Mm. And the cloak? And the cloak is and the latest one that I heard from Maria's brother, Michael, that um, I knew the story about the cloak and that um, Gulliver's husband, you know, thought of her so much he, he had a a lot of love for her that he wanted to do something special and he went right out, he went out into the mountains to collect enough possums to create a white possum skin cloak. Mm. And because they're, they're very rare, he had to, you know, um, search high and low and, you know, right out into the mountains to find enough possums to come back and make a beautiful possum skin cloak. And when he had enough, he came back and... He made her this cloak and she's laying down and he put it over her. And that, the old people say, is her, the cloud is her white possum skin cloak. Mm. And I knew that for a long time and then just one day out of the blue I heard Michael talking about the possum skin cloak and her husband, you know, saying that her husband was Picolone, which is, I think, is the European name for it that mountain out behind Kabarga over there. But is that its traditional name, Maria? Do you know about that? 
So it kind of puts bits of the puzzle together for mm. me. So yeah. her husband is fecal on it, Bianca Bargo, and I have Google that. And, uh, yeah, it does look a, a same, similar shape to Gulliga. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, in, the, in your paintings you're Yeah, so I try to put story. some of that in. Um, it might be that part of the Gulliga's story. It might be the story about her sons. Mm. It might be the story about um, uh, you know the um, the stars at night and uh, Tuku Nyadi. It might be part of that story, which she's actually also in. Mm. Um, but you know they're all different, basically. And I've done, mm. you know, I'm not may have done close to maybe twenty. Um, yeah. paintings now, mm. but. You know, I'll continue telling that story. Yeah. Um, and what it else? might be just about the lake as well, like Wollaga Lake. Mm. Yeah, but um, they're all they're all different. They all they all have some sort of different information about them. Mm. Yeah. And what else do you are you in, like with your paintings? Like, how else are you inspired, and what gives you the ideas of what to paint? Um. Uh, look, everything, uh, every artist would know, you know, sometimes you can just walk past something and see it, mm. you know. If it catches oh, your gosh, eye. Yeah. I want to do that. Or you can, you understand it, you know, that shape or how it's formed a bit better. So you go and you start drawing and then you're trying to, uh, you know, draw the Waratah because the Waratah is really hard for me to draw. Mm. But I keep studying it and studying it. I thought, because I, everything is kind of stylized and it has to be my own yeah. um, version of that. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a lot of work to actually get something that's really creatively um, mine. Yeah. 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 Unique. Unique. And yeah, it's like, I haven't really. I don't feel like I've really got to that yet with the Waratah, but it's a really important thing that I have to spend more time on because the Waratah is a part of Gulliga's story as well. Mm. It's about Nadi's heart and Nadi left it on the mountain. I just haven't done anything really convincingly mine yet. You know, mm. When I've done it a hundred times, the Waratah, it still looks like someone else's drawing. Mm. Nothing more... I hate them. Yeah. <laughs> Being accused of doing someone else's mm. style or stuff. But, you know, what I... I think ha- you definitely do have a very distinct style in <laughs> yeah. what you're doing. Well, I re- that's really what I try. Yeah. To, that's what I strive for is just to be to be different and have my own style. Mm. Yeah. And you talk about um, how you belong. You are 100% from... This region. Yeah. So can you kind of explain well, what that's like and how that actually feels? Because I think for a lot of us, like I was saying to the other day, like for me I was born in England and I grew up in Melbourne and I've lived here for 10 yeah. years or so. But like to actually sort of have generations and generations. and That's right. Like, I, You know, I can never, and I don't know if anyone can ever say they're 100% from this country mm. because, you know, our mob married into different models. Yeah, well. yeah. But if you think about it, you know, it's like, yeah, well, yeah, well they might have, like, a few generations ago married someone from, you know, in, the, in those big uh, big gatherings and that, you know, <laughs> up mm. in the... Because our mob used to travel up into um, Narigo country as well. Yeah. And that was a big time for, you know, gather, getting together and, you know, meeting people and... Um, going home, you know, married. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> married up. So um, and might might have been someone from over in Yass or anywhere because mm. those gatherings were people from everywhere. Yeah. But, but even just in your own lifetime, in, in your recent life, generations. Yeah. Of, I mean, if anyway. I could just say immediately, like, I was born in Bega um, and my mother was born in Nara, even though her grandfather was born at Walliger, her great-grandfather was born at Walliger. Her great great grandfather was born at Wallaga. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, well, 
Yeah, so this That's is a real really, connection. That, that is a real connection mm. uh, for me and for mum and, you know, all mm. of us. But also we can say the same in the Narigo too, um, is that, you know, our nan's from there. Her, her mother was, you know, Mary Bradshaw. She's from there. There are, like, um, parts of our little footprint that come from WA, from Albany. Um, yeah. But that's only one part of the family. Mm. You know, that's one woman in a whole network yeah. of other people from this country, you know, mm. that she'd actually got married into. Mm. But she came over here um, as a stolen child. Mm, okay. And they bought her on the back of a truck mm. um, with five other um, young kids. Um from Albany. So, but she married a, a traditional man in America. In America. Mm. So, the people might think, oh, well, we're Western Australians. You know, they're not really Narigo. Mm. But no, it's a, she's married. She married a Narigo yeah. man that was living traditional. And that was our idea of being there, yeah. mm. to dissolve our culture because she had actually been raised in a convent in WA. Mm. And um, at the even uh, before uh, the Aboriginal Protection Board, they were sending young women over here to marry into men that were actually uh, still living traditional lifestyles. Oh, okay, hoping that and you know them having children that the culture would be dissolved because mm. they knew nothing about their culture. Mm. They been, they'd been stolen as young babies, you know. That, but that never happened. But it didn't work like that. No, it didn't yeah. work like that. The traditional because culture. Because we had all our, yeah. our grandfather's, um, you know, mould as well in Narigo. Mm. And, um, yeah, Nangaja, like uh, Nangaja Station, that's where our first European family, you know, like our, our white ancestry. Yeah come from because they were the Fairweathers or the Fairweathers, they came from Wales. Okay. And uh, they were all boys and our man, who was, uh, he was really strict, he said he's not to have relationships with the native women. Mm. But he did, he had a relationship with with one of them and he took, him, took her to be his wife even. And they yeah. had children. And the old fella said, all right, well, you can stay down in that paddock where the brindle cows are and they're not to have my surname. Mm. And they called them the brindles mm. with the brindle cows. Mm. <laughs> so we were named after cows. Yeah. So my nan was Iris Brindle. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that was her great-great-grandfather or something like that. But... um. Yeah. So, so having that strong, that really deep connection, does that obviously that shows through in your artwork? Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, when I first started painting, I wasn't painting um, any of my cultural stuff. I was just doing, you know, wacky stuff, really. Yeah. And um, then I. Actually, took a I I done a trip to took a what was what is it? I I was offered a cultural exchange in New Zealand. Oh yeah. And it was around the time they were doing a lot of their you know revival of their language and that in the preschools and stuff. And yeah. So it was a really good time to be there. And then I went over there and I actually was at the opening of one of their big. Um, Maori exhibitions and um, a lot, lot of local artists and students from around Wanganui were, in, you know, involved in that and I got to see their art. Mm. And I was already teaching at Bondi Tape. I was teaching Aboriginal arts and culture. And then I just thought, wow, you know, like these, the culture was still so intact, you know, mm. compared to us. Mm. It was a little bit sad for me as yeah. well, but it was a bit of an eye-opener. And then I came back to Australia and 
I said, we've got to be do, doing more of our stuff. Oh, actually, I got homesick over there. Yeah. And I wanted to come home and the, the lady that I was billeted out to just said, here, um, just start, get, get stuck into a print, you know. Just to, She was printing on old lino, floor lino squares and um, chucked me a lino tile and um, I was sitting there thinking, what am I going to do, you know. And the first thing that came to mind was, you know, I was being called home and the mountain was calling me back. Like, That's it. The mm. mountain's calling me home. Gulliga Mountain. So I actually did that story while I was over there. Yeah, okay. And, and I didn't finish that print. I didn't actually finish that line until about a year after I'd come home. Yeah. And I, um, I took a trip up to... Uh, to Canberra and uh, met up with Theo Tremblay who was doing lots of printing for Indigenous people and he printed that for me and he said, you know, you should charge 150 for that print. Mm. And I went, what? I was going to charge like 10 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, it's too important. Good. It is too important mm. to be selling it for 10 bucks. He yeah. said, this is your culture. And you can't just chuck your culture away. Mm. And I thought, yep, that's right. So I charged 150 per print even though I was in disbelief. But the first show that they were in was at the Spiral Gallery where I had my very first solo exhibition. How and long ago was that? 97, 98. Yeah. It would have been 98. 98, 99 maybe. Yeah. Because I didn't finish until a year later and then I had it for a while before I met up with Theo. Because Theo does a lot of printing for Indigenous people, First yeah. Nations, you know. Lots of Dennis, I think he was involved doing Dennis Nona's print, Raymond Meeks and, you know, all them. Mm. Pretty high-profile artists. So um, you put it in the exhibition and... Well, I did 50, additional 50, and like, they just sold every yeah, single right. one of them. <laughs> Not in that exhibition, but in the next following, probably following year, they were just all gone. And I, mm. I think that's unreal. Like, yeah. Who'd have thought? Like, because I just, I never actually ever produced art to actually make a living off. I, mm. I, I knew I was good, you know. I'd actually always been told I was really good. Yeah. I just got better with that and I just thought, well, now I'm just going to have to pick my game up and I actually taught for a long time as well in TAFE for eight years and, you know, I got tired of the students questioning every little thing I did, you know, to make them better. Mm. I said, just, you've just got to, you know, follow the format, mm. you know, and I'll show you how to do it. Um, and they wouldn't follow me, some of them. Mm-hmm. They just did their own thing. And so we had a exhibition for, that was in 91 actually, so that was long before I'd come down, in uh, the Year of the Indigenous People. And um, they had their work in there and then I thought, I'm going to put my work in there. Mm. And I did. You know, and they was really kind of impressed. Like, you know, they they it took that to, for them to see that. You knew know. what you're talking about. Yeah, I know what <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about. Please, just yeah. Um, so you know, everything that I did after that, um, it became better, and I become more professional. And I, you know, I, I actually talk to my students about that as well. Is just having integrity in everything that you do. Mm. Don't, for God's sake, don't make stuff up because there's nothing worse than mm. you're standing there listening to that stuff. Um, and, I, you know, I say we have stories to tell. Mm. We don't have to make stuff up, every one of us. It doesn't matter how small or insignificant you think it is. Mm. You know, people love to hear our story. Mm. And... You know, a lot of them young people that I was teaching at Bombardieri Homes when I was teaching for TAFE, we, the TAFE actually acquired one of the buildings at the old Bombardieri Homes, which was 
um, uh, the homes for the stolen kids, yeah. for the toddlers. A lot of the toddlers in New South Wales were taken there. And um, some of those young people that I was teaching actually went through the homes mm. and then they were feeling like they couldn't go on and continue the class because of their experience at the homes and mm. it's been taken away by their parents. Mm. And that, all that hurt and trauma and I said, you know, well, that's really what you can be talking about in your heart. In mm. your heart is just talk, you know. Tell that story because that's really important. Mm. You know, I want to know that story. Mm. I want to. Um, people don't necessarily know exactly what's going no. on. So, no, people don't know. You know, they don't know that trauma. Um, and then, you know, look, the people, you know, it's just telling your truth. Yeah. Really, is that that's important. And. Even though I don't paint a lot of that stuff in my work, my life, although I could, um, you know, that's what I teach to other people. It doesn't matter how big or small your story is. I might paint a picture of my dog chasing mm. the carawongs mm. up the tree, you know. that That's something that I've done and everyone loves that painting. Yeah. But um, it could be something small, as small as that even. It doesn't mm. have to be about your trauma. Mm. But just tell it's your personal. story. Yeah, don't make it up mm. because that's gambling. Yeah, uh, you know, don't you know, don't don't make our culture, you know, something that is something that you just want to make money off. It's about really teaching people, and if you're really good, you know, if you're really good at it, <laughs> and you're really telling people story that people want to hear, yeah, you know, but even. Um, you know, you, you will actually, um, you can actually um, become really successful. Yeah. Because it's from, I feel that that stuff is from your, your heart, mm. you know. I just found that, you know, when I paint about my story, my cultural stories, people really love them. And that for me is a way of getting Aboriginal people in the hearts and minds of everyday Australians mm. is by telling people, hey, look, you know, this is this is our culture. This is what this is what our ancestors have kept alive, you know, over thousands of years, and even through all this all the colonization and and trauma that we've been through, we still have these stories. You mm. know, they're still in our lives, and I and um, you know um, that's something really for everyone, every Australian to really um, be proud about. You know, that we can still tell these stories, mm. um, and I've got a lot of stories. I just you know. Like a lot of stories were told to me just sitting around the campfire, you know, by my uncles and aunties and some of them were told to me while they were, you know, drunk and, you know, people weren't really listening, but I was. Because, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a, this your uncle, you know, just rambling away, you know. Yeah. But I used to sit there and I just used to love every bit mm. of the story. And, like, and now so this I think. is your way of passing those stories on. Yeah. Like the Dreamtime stories. I think what was really what's really lovely about um, my experience with those stories is that um, I actually were t- was told by an elder, you know, and then and then um, to come down from move from Nara down to Eden uh, when my daughter was only a baby, um, and finding my uncles and that telling the same story. Mm. I thought, yeah, it's so you know, it's that it's the same story I yeah, was told. So yeah. it gives it, um, what is it? You know, it's the same, it's the same thing. So it's genuine. You yeah, know, it's not it just something that one old. Yeah, it's yeah. not just that story that one person had made up. It does give it legitimacy because it's not just that elder and my uncles down here are telling it. Yeah. And then I open up a book with Uncle Percy Mumbler, and he's telling the same story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but that book come out after I, because that book, um, I learnt that story only as a young girl. Mm. And um, Uncle Percy wrote that book with Lee Chittick, you know, when I was a teenager mm. maybe. So, 
said he said to see two to him to my uncles tell the story. Yeah. And then see it written down. There's actually that common thread through all through mm. through the three of them, you know. And they're pretty much the same. And then I guess for people to see your their stories in your artworks is Yeah, and then to, I think is yeah, another I'm, level of that. I'm I'm doing it I'm doing it right. Like this is right. Like yeah. I don't feel um like I don't feel like it's I just feel like it's genuine then. It's yeah. not it's not um something made up or or you know, it is actually a real true dreamtime story that yeah. comes from yeah. many generations of my mom, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And now look everyone, all of our young kids in the primary schools in Bermagui primary, all the kids at Walliger, a lot of our family that even though, you know, we didn't grow up in Walliger. Mm. We were born in Began, we lived on Walliger up until, you know, the mission days were over and we mum and dad took off up to Nara. But um back you know, packed up for a better life for us. Yeah. Um, but we all made our way back home eventually. Mm. Yeah. This this has always been home. Even though Nara is still on country. Mm. And it's trying to get other people to see that, you know, because we always get, oh, you know, you didn't grow up, Danny, you just grew up in Nara. Nara's still country, hello. Yeah. They're still talking Durga language in Nara. We yeah. all talk Durga down here as well, you yeah. know, or Durga, should I say. Yeah. Um, so how, how, have I, how have we left home? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's another thing that people have so many misconceptions about is about our our thing of country, you know, our our ideas about country. So we know that from Eden all the way through to Sydney is country. Yeah. And over into Narragal is country. Okay. You know, it's not just Tilbury is not just country. Mm. Country is this great expanse of uh, and if you live in different There's areas. a dream job story there. Yeah. If you live in different countries, in different parts of your life, do you still consider them all country? Do you mean if your I live in country? Sydney? Yeah, or say you live in Western Australia or, you know, oh. somewhere completely different. No, I wouldn't consider Or is it that. sort of where you're... Is it where you've grown up or where your ancestors are from or, um, or where you connect to now? No, I know even though my nan's from over there, I wouldn't consider that country now. No. But say if you'd spent half your life in one place and half in another, would you kind of consider them both country? I don't know. I've never done that. Yeah. It's amazing for you to that yeah. pure experience. I don't just think any of us, place. any of my family have done that. Like, we've just all stayed here. Yeah. Why would you want to go anywhere else? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Actually, no. We we did live in Tamworth for a little while when we were growing up. My dad got a job out at Tamworth. We lived there for two years, but that was part of his his grandfather's country mm. as well. Um, that was part of our grandfather's country because that the Davison name comes from Walker Urella. Well, it comes from it comes from. Wales originally, because all the way back through our family, yeah. there's a James Davison, James Davison, all the way back to Wales or Ireland. Or yeah, right. But um, the, yeah, the, um, that's my dad's, my dad's dad's country, my grandfather's country. Mm. But my dad's grandmother is from La Perouse. And um, she moved up to to Kempsey, and you know when she was fourteen years old, and she stayed there, and she grew up there a bit, and was raised by Greta Dixon. But she she lived on uh, Billbrook, you know, helping out there with Greta Dixon, who was one of the first um, inland missionaries mm. 
So she ran them in the missionary ministry or whatever it was, but they actually, um, she took Nan with her when she was, Granny with her when she was 14 years old. And Granny went up there and lived and um, she ended up, you know, living there and getting married there and had all her children there and then they all came back to live down Lapa. Mm. Yeah, and my my grandfather, my my dad and all that, all his brothers and sisters and all the family came back. So they all come back to country, you know, Mm. because Labra is down, it's all country. Yeah. So speaking of the Derrida language, um, can you tell me a bit about what you're doing musically and with the choir and singing? So... um, uh, Two years ago, I actually applied for a job at Four Winds um, to be um, applied for the Aboriginal Creative Director's job. Yeah. And I thought I'll give it a shot, even though my, um, you know, music is not really my... (laughs) Forte. Forte. I'm a visual artist. But I'm very creative. Mm. And I've got a good ear for things, you know. Yeah. I know what I like and what I don't like. Yeah. So I thought I'll give it a shot. And then it turned out to be for a little while, yes, this is like a dream job for me because I was really given a lot of um, room to be just really creative what yeah. I wanted to run, you know, run that project. And uh, I thought the first thing I'll do is get a choir together. It'll be easy. Yeah. The choir will be easy to get together, you know, something to start, get my sort of, you know, hands into and turned out it wasn't so easy. Yeah. It was really hard because um, getting a choir together is like herding cats, as yeah. someone said. <laughs> <laughs> and um, oh, it's like meeting up regularly and rehearsing. Meeting up regularly, and... re- rehearsing, but also... Yeah, there was lots of um, barriers for people getting there because, mm. you know, they they was expected to get there and get home and mm. just getting there. Yeah. Um, petrol and, yeah. You know, whatever. And there's quite a distance to travel around here. Well, it's, so it, it is. If you live in Naruma, if you live yeah. in Maria and mm. you have to come every week for rehearsal, it was hard. And we were just really singing songs that we remember from church or things that we mm. liked wasn't anything really special. Yeah. But the girls were loving it. The ladies were loving it. But and were you singing trying to make language? That commitment. Not then, no. But yeah. we were singing some other people's, like um, In Our Nay by um, Christina Nu and um, some of the songs that were sung in uh, the Sapphires there. One of their songs, I can't remember the name of it, but um, we, we were singing those songs in other people's languages and we really enjoyed that too, but yeah. we really loved the hymns as well. Yeah. But, you know, in between all of that COVID and also a lot of sorry business mm. as well, um, it was hard keeping the group together. Mm. Um, but we just... You know, we just had to keep at it because we had to start somewhere. Mm. We had to really put that, put a lot of heavy lifting into getting people to stay and just stick it out, Mm. you know, promise them the world. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Just stay, you know, it's going to be good, you know. We're going to get gigs and we're going to, you know, my dream is to take this over to um, Western Australia where we're singing off Mitchell Falls and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, all that stuff, <laughs> which is still going to happen. It's still part of my, you know, vision for the girls. Yeah. Um, but sorry business really killed us a lot too because mm. when people go away, they stay away for weeks. Yeah. And so we started off with a, a small group and it got big and then then it just, uh, you know, ended, we ended up with a group who were really dedicated yeah. Yeah. And that and group is it. my family. Yeah, right. You know, only because I say every week, come on, you got to come, please just come. 
And so they come, and it's Iris, Maria, Michelle, Tamsin, Rakaya, who is Gabadu and uh, Ashley's daughter. Beautiful girl. So we're trying to sort of get her to um, give her a little bit of a experience with stage presence and all that stuff. And yeah. Sort of nurture her along the way. And Kobe as well. But, um, yeah, I couldn't think of anything to do, you know, like ways of keeping them there. And I knew that if we did something that was really cultural, like, you know, write songs in our language, everyone would want to get on board with that. Mm. Yeah. Because everyone would love to learn the language. And what a good way to do it. Mm. Is to write songs in our language and sing them, you know. Mm. Um, but surprisingly, you know, not many people have taken that up. But so did you write the songs or did you write well, them we as got, a group? Well, or? I just happened to be, and I'll tell you, say it to you too and said it to other people too, that is, everywhere I went in that project, I felt like my ancestors had put me there. Yeah. Because every corner I turned was the right person there mm. to say yes. Yeah. So my first trip away um, uh, for Four Winds was a day at Mutual Library um, talking about language, and I forget the workshop, but Lou Bennett was there. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I just went up and said, hello, Lou, I'm Cheryl, I'm from Four Winds. Yeah. And, you know, this is what I want to do. What do you think? And she says, yes, contact me. That would be great because she awesome. just got her scholarship, um, her West, uh, Westpac scholarship, and it was to do with the, the language and okay. repatriation of language through song. Yeah, right. So Perfect. I was just in, in, yeah, in the face of the per- most perfect person yeah, I could yeah. run into. Uh, oh, thank you, thank you. So, and a great musician. So she ended up coming, Lou came down and did um, a few workshops with us now. Yeah. She started us writing songs. Um, teaching us um, the rights and wrongs and not to, you know, not to be too harsh about how we did it because we're learning. Yeah. And not yeah. to be too too critical about the way pronunciation at this stage. We'll get it right. Yeah. It's right, you know, when we're, when we're right, you know. Yeah. Um, and so she was really good and she actually mentored us a lot and, and we, we produced three songs out of the first workshop. And then the second workshop, we actually came along with some stuff. So maybe six months to a year later, I think, mm. we had the second one and we said, oh, yeah, we've got this. What do you think? What do you? <laughs> and she just went, oh, yeah, that's great. And started playing some music. So awesome. she helped us arrange the songs and yeah. uh, put some melody in that to them. And, you know, we was just, just about off then, but, you know, away. But what happened was the third time we'd actually got, we'd written our own songs and we had a, then we had, we created a friendship with the Candelo musicians and creatives and and so they started helping us to write melodies and songs too. So now there's a bit of uh, our songs in their songs and their songs in our songs and and then yeah. you performed at Four Winds. Yeah, well, no, that was that was after the second workshop. Yeah. But we had the second workshop maybe a week before the, or fortnight before the second show. Yeah. And then we got up on stage and sang three new songs in language mm. that no one was expecting. Yeah. And we put one of Melanie Hostel's music. Yeah wrote one of her verses in language or the chorus of that Sugar and White Man in language um, with Lou and people really loved that. They got Mm. that, you know. Mm. Now I want my language to teach to my child. I want my stories to sing to her at night, Mm. you know, and, yeah, it was just magic. Mm. Singing those songs and and singing in language, you know. 
observations like that are something that I talk about as well mm. because it's in our stories as well. Mm. Yeah. We sing about Mirida. Yeah. Some people call her Marita. But it's not important how you say it. When you're starting. Give it a go. Yeah. Yeah, Mirida. And so some of those, some of those um, paintings that you're doing with the cockies and does, does the cocky have a particular... The black cockies and a particular yeah, that's a that's a strange story. Well, I pretty much what grew up in there after we left Wollaga, and so the the story, the, the main story about um, about Nara is uh, Camberwara Mountain, and Camberwara Mountain was a burning mountain, and in the dream time, uh, the cockies, the white cockies, narwhal, wanted to see where the the fire and flames were coming in the white cockies. Mm. So they flew up over yeah. the mountain <laughs> and they had to fly through the black burning soot and smoke. And a uh, big flame come up out of the mountain and caught their tailor light and they took off flying west with their tailor light and yeah. all their feathers all burnt and black from the soot. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's how the Black Cock 2 was created. Mm. Now, you know, the interesting part of it is that we say the last part of that story is they flew west. But when you're in Western Australia, they say the black cockatoo brings the fire. Okay. And he comes from the east. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's that connection. I just, you know, that yeah. big, long storyline is connecting. And, it, you know, we have stories that connect us all over yeah. the country, you know, massive, big songlines. Mm. Yeah, and we're only just starting to discover that we are from the East Coast, but the old people, you know, in um, on in the in Western Australia and Central Australia, they know. Mm. Yeah, they know more of the story, but it kind is of, that because they haven't sort of? Oh well, they been... know that they've known the they know the story, but when it came over here because of uh, well colonisation, yeah. pretty much, as as uh, as broken that song line, but. Mm. I don't know if it's. I don't think it's going to be hard to to really reconstruct it again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's the singing. I was talking to Trisha Ellis about it, and she was saying, you know, it's it's also about healing country. Yes, singing. So how can you tell me a bit about? Well, healing country. To heal country. And when we say heal country, we also mean heal people. Mm. You know. When we talk about healing country, we're actually also talking about healing people. Mm. And when you sing, and you sing into country, you're healing country, but you're also singing and healing yourself. Mm. And I don't know if people really, I don't know if people really would understand that mm. or whether I'm just articulating it properly, but I know that too. Hi. <laughs> I know that through singing and what we do and learning our culture and our language again mm. heals us. Mm. And when we sing the country, that heals country. Mm. When we heal country, we heal people. Yeah. Because without country, you know, without country and healthy country, you don't have healthy people. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not really a long thread. But, no. you, you know. Yeah. 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 So thanks for having a chat with me today, Cheryl. You're welcome. It was nice. Yeah. <laughs> you have been listening to the PIP podcast. You can also subscribe to our magazine 
explore articles on growing, fermenting, composting, foraging, and much more, as well as watch our videos and listen to our podcast episodes, all on our website, pipmagazine.com.au, or follow us on socials.